Titus chapter 2. About a month ago, we started looking at Titus 2. Took a break last week for our communion service, but we've been working through Titus chapter 2, kind of slowly taking our time because I felt like it was worth really focusing on each of the groups that Paul dealt with and taking the time to say, you know, if What is the implication of the gospel in each of these circumstances and for each of these people? What does it mean? And so we, we considered in Titus 2, we considered Paul's instructions to Titus as, a, as a, uh, his representative. We considered in Titus 2 Paul's instructions to the older men in the church. We also considered Paul's instructions to the older women in the church. That was a, a daring uh, proposition to single out the older women. Then we talked about the younger women and what was Titus's responsibility, what was the responsibility of the message that he was to give them, and what was their responsibility to be. And even the young men, we kind of lumped in with the older men in that passage. And we talked about slaves. We said we can't just brush that aside because Paul doesn't deal with slavery the way we think he ought to deal with slavery as 21st century, you know, Westerners living in a, in a world in which, at least in our society, slavery has been outlawed, although you could argue that it still continues in some ways. And certainly in other places in the world, slavery is still very much alive and real. It always has been through the history of humankind. But there are principles that we drew out of here that, 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 that are taught. And, and I, I said at the beginning, way back in October, I want, to, I want to say it was October 15th, was that Sunday. And I said then that we would get to the why. You know? I mean, I said at the time, you tell, a, you tell a toddler what to do and they ask, why? And eventually you kind of have to come to that because I said so kind of thing because at a certain point you run out of answers because they just keep asking why. Right? And at some point you have to say, because I'm the mom, I'm the dad, because I know and you don't, so just listen. Okay? Trust me on this one. Right? Well, we want to know why. We want to understand why. So, so Paul says, older men... There in Titus 2 and verse 2, he says, Older men, you're supposed to be sober, that is, sound-minded. You're supposed to be reverent, worthy of respect. You're supposed to be self-controlled. You're supposed to be sound or healthy in your faith, in love, and in patience. Older men, this is supposed to be you. And then he says, Older women, you're supposed to be reverent in behavior. In other words, you're supposed to act like you belong to Christ. You're not supposed to be slandering. You're not supposed to be using your tongue to, to harm and do damage to others. You're not supposed to be addicted to wine. And you're supposed to be teaching good things. In fact, all the women you're supposed to be teaching the younger women in the church. And here's what you're supposed to teach them. So younger women need to learn to love their husbands, love their children, 
to be discreet or, or, or uh, to be, um, control, again, self-controlled. Have this same kind of stable and steady right-mindedness. To be chaste or pure. To learn to be diligent at home. Doing good for their family and obedient to their husbands. And then young man, you're supposed to be like the old men. You're supposed to follow their example and learn from them about how to be sober-minded. How to have that kind of right kind of thinking, that balanced kind of thought pattern. All of these things. And then slaves, what does he say? Slaves, you're supposed to be obedient to your masters. We're talking here to people who are under authority. And so there are principles here that apply to all of us. Be obedient to your authority. Don't be seeking yourself. Don't be trying to please yourself, but instead please the one that has an authority over you. And these are the principles. Now the question that we want to ask is, why? You might sit there and say, but why should I do these things? Well, let me summarize them all together in this form. This is really the question today. Why should we live as Christians and not like the rest of the world? I think it's a fair question. If these instructions in the first uh, 10 verses of Titus chapter 2 are applicable to us, and I've said that they are, we've studied them out, if they are, if these are how we're supposed to live, then why? Why should we live this way and not listen to what the rest of the world says? Why should we set up a model in our church, of older men setting the example and leading the younger men? Why should we set up a model in our church of older women passing on the wisdom that they have learned and through experience to the younger women and teaching them and training them about how they ought to be? Why should we do that? Why go to all that trouble? Why should we live as Christians? And not like the rest of the world. Should there be a difference? I, I was just reading, I'm, I'm reading a book um, for my, my pastor's book club. That's what I call it anyways. We don't have an official title. But we meet once a quarter and we read a book together and then we discuss it. And uh, so I'm reading this book and, and it's looking at the time of the Reformation, the 1500s. And it's looking at some of the kind of more extreme groups, more radical groups. They're called the radical reformers. I mean, we've heard about people like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. But these are like looking at the other people who are a little bit more um, extreme in their desire to reform. And the interesting thing is, as I'm reading the book, and I'm thinking, man, that, a lot of the things they're saying sound really appealing to me. Because I'm reading this chapter this week and they're talking about how the, these radical reformers, this was a radical idea that the, that the people in the church ought to live differently than the people in the world. And their, their big exception that they took to the rest of the reformers was, well, okay, Luther preaches salvation by faith alone. Great. But you look in his church and all the people in his church live just like everybody else. There's no difference. And so these people complained about it and said, well, these churches are filled with a bunch of people who talk about faith, 
who talk about being saved by faith alone, but then they don't do anything. Their lives don't reflect anything different. And I think, man, that's exactly what Titus 2 is all about. How should we live? And why? We've already talked about the how, the first 10 verses. How should we live? All those principles. Verse 11 through 15 really tells us the why. So look at verse 11 with me. Titus says, or Paul says this to Titus 4. Because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Christ, I'm sorry, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let's just take a moment here and pray together and ask for God's help as we consider the truths of his word and understand why it is that you and I ought to live differently as Christians than the rest of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word we have opened this morning. Our desire is that we would hear it, that from your word we would receive truth about how we ought to live, about what you expect of us, but most importantly, truth about you, what you have done, what you continue to do. Lord, we need your truth and your wisdom. People don't need to hear what I have to say or what I think this morning. We need to hear from you. And so help us to understand the truth of your word. Help me to make it very clear what your word is saying so that it's not uh, human wisdom or ingenuity here, but it's the spirit-inspired word of God pray that you take hold of us with it. Grip our hearts, that you would make us what you want us to be and cause us to leave this morning with changed hearts because we have heard the message of your word and your spirit has done his work in our hearts. I pray that you would do this. Use me as your instrument to accomplish your purpose today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting if I ask the question again, why? Why should we live as Christians and not like the world? The answer is found very clearly for us there in verse 11. Why should we live differently today? I'll tell you, it's very simple. Because God's grace has appeared. God's grace has appeared to save. Now notice on, my, on the screen, I've got to point this out because I want to make this very, very clear. I used the punctuation here to make this as clear as I could. I'm not saying God's grace only appears to save. I'm saying God's grace has, a, has appeared to accomplish the purpose of saving. That's what verse 11 is saying. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
The grace of God has appeared. What is Paul talking about? The grace of God has appeared. By the way, you'll notice that's past tense. He's speaking of something that has already happened. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You've read it before in John chapter 1, in verse 14, right? The Word became flesh, and John says, and it dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is equal with the Father, the second uh, person of the Trinity, he came down to earth and he took on human flesh. He became a man. John says, we have seen him. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we have seen him in his glory. John also talks about it in 1 John, where he says that our, our eyes have seen and our ears have heard and our hands have touched him. We have, we have perceived with our senses the very person of God has come down. He has appeared that's what Paul's talking about here. The grace of God has appeared. But notice what else he's saying here. That the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation. Of course, we're, we're coming up, we're approaching Christmas, the Christmas season very soon, right? Uh, this week, we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving. Uh, and you know what happens. After Thanksgiving, you blink, and it's Christmas. And then you blink again, and it's next year. Okay, it's 2018. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's right there, right? The calendar just speeds like, you know, when you're losing control going downhill. And that's what we're getting to here, okay? The end of the year is coming quickly. And so we're almost there. Christmas season. And what do we celebrate at Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, we're celebrating the appearing, Right? Of Jesus Christ. His coming to earth in human flesh. We call it the incarnation, the enfleshment of Christ. But here's the thing, right? It's not just the birth of Christ that matters. That's not just what Paul is talking about here. Because it's the grace of God that appeared that does what? It brings salvation. So what is he speaking of? He's talking about all of Christ's earthly life and ministry. Yes, Jesus Christ was born to Mary. And he was born there in Bethlehem in very humble circumstances. And he was placed in the manger. And, and all of those things that we celebrate and we think about with such tenderness at Christmas time. And it's a great thing. And it's a good thing. But of course, we also, we also recognize that the, that the scriptures tell us much more about Jesus than just those, those first moments of his birth and his first moments of his earthly life. The scriptures talk about his growing and his, his, his coming to adulthood and then his ministry in public where he, he taught and he, and he preached and he ministered and he healed and he, and he did all these wonderful works. All of these very clear evidences and signs that were proof of who he was and of what he came to do. And then the ultimate sign where he was crucified and he was 
crushed. In his physical, earthly life, he was crushed and he was put to death. Buried in a tomb. Rose from the grave victorious. And ascended to heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand. All of this is in view in this simple phrase that Paul includes for us in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What is this? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came. He came to this earth. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended. And all of that to complete our salvation. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, Titus, why should you live like a Christian and not like the rest of the world? Very simply this, because Jesus Christ has come and brought salvation. That's really what it is, in a nutshell. If you want to know the answer to the why question, it's this. Because Jesus Christ has come and brought salvation. His grace has appeared in order to save. Now, you okay? Well, we believe that we are saved by grace, right? Through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Everybody here this morning, I mean, I just quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Everybody here this morning agree with that? Anybody want to raise your hand and say, yeah, I agree with that? We are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. It's not by the things we do. Everybody, everybody in agreement? I just want to make sure we're, we're so far you're tracking with me. Okay. All right. Whew. I was a little nervous there for a minute. <clears throat> I thought we're going to have to go back and start over, Greg. No, we're doing okay. So, so we agree on that, right? You are not saved by your works. So this salvation that Paul is talking about here that has appeared, this, great, this salvation that has been brought to all men, is accomplished apart from any good works or any deeds that you and I would do. We all agree on that. And that's important. All genuine Christians, all people who are true followers of Christ agree on that. We must. I would submit to you that if you don't agree on that, then you are not a Christian. I don't mean that to be offensive. It's just simply the truth. If we define our terms properly, if you do not believe that you're saved by grace alone without your works, then you are not truly a Christian, okay. regardless of what you call yourself. But this is where this gets tricky because I said what we're asking or what we're answering is a simple question. Why do we live a certain way? Why should we do certain things? And then I point to the grace of God and say, because we're saved by grace apart from works. Do you see a problem here? If we're saved by grace apart from works, then what do works have to do with it? Where do works come in at all? See. There are a lot of people today who would say, well, exactly. We're saved by grace. We're saved apart from works, and therefore... Works have nothing to do with it. And they'll say, well, look at the thief on the cross. He was a man who was guilty. He was a robber. He was a thief. He was a murderer. He was hanging on a cross next to Jesus, dying uh, as he should have for his crimes. 
And what did the thief on the cross do? He, he, he said to, to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you're going to be with me in paradise. See, he was saved by grace. No works involved. He couldn't have done any works. He couldn't get down off the cross and get baptized. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't pray. He couldn't read his Bible. He couldn't tell anybody about Christ. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything, right? He couldn't teach a Sunday school class. He couldn't work in the nursery. He couldn't clean the church. He couldn't, right? I mean, whatever you want, he couldn't do it. He was dying. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Great example. Saved by grace apart from works. There's no works involved. Okay? This is why we don't stop at the end of verse 11. Because there's a more detailed answer that Paul is giving. Right? The grace of God has appeared. Past tense. Jesus Christ has come and he's brought salvation to all. And it is by the grace of God. It is a gift apart from works. And we all affirm that. But notice what else Paul says in verse 12, speaking here about the grace of God. I don't have time to go into all the grammar of this this morning. But verse 11 gives us the subject and the verb of the sentence. And we've got to read all the way down through verse 14 to finish the sentence. Everything else is modifying, it's speaking back about the grace of God that has appeared. Okay? So we got grace appeared, subject, action, and then we have all the rest. And notice what else he says here in verse 12. What does that grace of God do? It teaches us. <laughs> notice that. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Wow. So past tense, the grace of God has appeared. That's something that happened in the past. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, born to the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect and sinless life, preached and taught and healed and did miracles, was crucified, was raised, ascended to heaven. All of that happened in the past. It appeared bringing salvation. But presently, currently, at this time, in fact, he, he says in the present age, the word present there in the, in the Greek language, and, and I, I, hate, I don't like to do this, but it's interesting to think about this. The Greek word that's used in that verse is now. In the now age is literally how it would read. In the now. Okay. This is what's going on right now, Paul says. In this present age, in the now age. So in the past, the grace of God appeared. But now, what is the grace of God doing now? It is teaching us. And so the second part of the answer here is that God's grace teaches us to live differently. God's grace teaches us. Now this word teaching is important because we, we might think teaching just involves giving instruction. But hold on a second. I know a lot of, a lot of you here are parents. And, uh, and some of you who aren't parents have nevertheless been teachers. So you understand 
what I'm going to say. But when you are trying to teach your child to do something, right? You're trying to teach your child to, I don't know, you know, make their bed. If you say to your child, Johnny, go make your bed. It's done, right? Right? It's completed. Perfectly finished, exactly as it should be. Right? I mean, it's just, you say it, it's done. Now, see, teaching involves a lot more than just giving instruction. You can even say, Johnny, you need to go make your bed. You need to straighten up the sheet and tuck in the corners. You need to make sure that the pillow is straight. You need to, to put the blanket across the top, you know, and, and, you know, whatever. You can even give them the military instructions, you know, like Vito did for his kids, you know, give them the drop in a quarter and make sure it bounced on the bed, right? You, you know, that kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> make sure it's all done right. You can tell them all of it. You can instruct them. But simple instruction is not teaching. Because what happens? You know this. What happens? When you tell your child, go make your bed. Well, then what you have to do is you have to walk down the hall to the bedroom and you got to look. And then you got to say, wait a second, what are you doing playing with your toys? <laughs> you know? No, it's not time for a drink. No, we don't need a snack. No, the dog doesn't need to go. You need to make your bed. I told you to do this. And then we have to show them what to do. We have to, we have to follow up the instruction with discipline. Right? We have to train them. We have to make consequences if they refuse. See? So the idea of teaching here, this word teaching means more than just giving an instruction. It actually means to train them using discipline. It's not a harsh word, but it's a strong word. The grace of God. Have you ever thought about the grace of God in this way? You think, well, God's grace saves me because I don't deserve to be saved. I admit that. I am, as the, the hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus, I am the most defiled. And God's grace reached out to me. I didn't deserve it. And it fills my heart with awe and wonder. And, and I'll never get past it that when I deserved Hell and damnation. Instead, God reached down and saved me, and I will thank him forever for that. Amen. But do you think, is that the only way you think about the grace of God? Because in this verse, Paul says the grace of God does more than that. The grace of God does more than just reach the most defiled. Yes, the grace of God bridges that huge chasm between us and God, and it reaches us in our sin and our corruption. Yes, that is true. But God's grace does more than that. Because God's grace teaches us. It trains us. It disciplines us. In what way? Look at what he says here. It trains us or teaches us that denying ungodliness, and worldly lust. In a negative way, the grace of God teaches us to deny some things, right? Deny means more than just uh, to turn away from them. It actually means to emphatically say, no, it's denying. It, I don't want anything to do with you. Remember, you know, Peter denied Christ, right? I don't even know this guy. Well, that's what Paul says that the grace of God is teaching us to do. In this now age, in this present time, the grace of God is teaching us to say, I don't even know that thing. I don't 
want anything to do with that. And what is it? Ungodliness. Ungodliness. It, interesting word here because it has the idea of things that are done without regard for God. Right? You know anybody who lives their life as if God just didn't exist? You ever live as if God just didn't exist? Well, Paul says the grace of God teaches us to deny that kind of thinking. Ungodliness. And worldly lusts or worldly desires, base desires, desires for things that are just of this world. Not things that are eternal, things that are transcendent, but instead just the things that are of this world. And so the grace of God teaches us negatively to deny certain things, to deny certain patterns of life, certain behaviors. Guess what? Before you became a Christian, you lived as if God did not exist and had no claim on you. That's what we do as rebel sinners, natural human beings in our sinful state. That's what we do. So that's what you did. Paul says, you don't do that anymore because the grace of God trains you not to. Okay. The same grace of God that brings salvation trains you to, to, to deny that kind of life. The life that says, well, I, I can do whatever I want. God doesn't have any claim on me. Or I can live for the, the things this world says are important. I can follow this world's desires. No, the, the grace of God that saves us teaches us to deny those things. But notice it also is a positive aspect here. It teaches that denying those things, we should live soberly. That word soberly doesn't mean not being drunk. Okay, it's the same word that's used several times already in the book of Titus, five times by my count. Okay? In chapter 1, it's used to speak about um, elders, pastors in the church, to say they must be sober-minded. It has, again, the idea of being balanced in their thinking, right-minded. It's used in verse 2 of this chapter to speak of the older men. Older men, you're supposed to be sober, right-minded in your thinking. It's used twice to speak of the women. Once, I think, referring to how the older women teach the younger women. Again, with a sober-minded, with a, with a right-mindedness. And then, of course, it's also what the younger women are to learn to do. So it's the same thing. And then the younger men are also told to be sober-minded. It is used of all of these different groups. And then Paul uses it again here. Do you think, do you think it's kind of important for us as Christians to have right kind of thinking? To have minds that are balanced, that are, are, are sober, steady, stable. That's the picture here. Paul says, this is what the grace of God teaches us to do or to be. To be right-minded. To think rightly. Notice what else it says. To live righteously. That means according to God's moral standard. And to live godly. It's the opposite term to what he said just before that. Denying ungodliness, we are to live godly. So just like we deny the lifestyle that says, I'm going to live as if God doesn't exist, grace teaches us to live in a godly way so that the things we do, the things we say, the things we think are all done in light of the fact that God exists and has a claim on us. 
That's what Paul says. God's grace teaches us, trains us in this present age. And so in the present time, at this moment in your life, you are somewhere, again, assuming, assuming this morning that all of us here are born again. All of us have trusted in Jesus Christ. We have, we have received the grace of God that brings salvation that appeared to all men. If that's true, and I assume it is, I'm saying that, but I recognize it may not be. So if it's not true, then that's where you start today. You can't go any further than that. The rest of this doesn't really mean anything to you. You need to trust in Christ. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ and be saved. You need to receive the grace of God that brings salvation. But that's the first step. If you have done that, then you are somewhere between there and the culmination, right? You're on a, a journey. You've, you've crossed the starting line, but you've yet to come to the finish line. You're somewhere in the middle. And what is God's grace doing right now as you're in the middle? God's grace is training you. It's training you to turn away from the old life of self-reliance, the old life of sinful desires. And instead, it's turning, training you to follow and pattern your life after these good principles, godliness and righteousness and sober thinking, right-mindedness. This is what the grace of God is doing actively in the now. And so why do we live as Christians and not like the world? Because God's grace has appeared in salvation. But God's grace is training us right now to be different than the world. But notice there's something else that he says. We're going to try to get to this. If we can, God's grace prepares us for Christ's return. Look at the next two verses. Looking for the blessed hope. And glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus Christ is coming again. This is described here by Paul in using two different terms, the blessed hope and glorious appearing. It is the blessed hope hope it is the expectation it is the thing for which believers long that's what paul talks about in romans 8 when he says that all of the creation groans together waiting for the full redemption that is promised in christ there is coming a day when the curse of sin is going to be removed when death is going to be completely cast away forever that's the day that we're looking for that's the hope that we have that's why Paul says in, in the book of Thessalonians that when we as Christians, when we grieve, when we mourn for those we've lost, we don't mourn as those who do not have hope. Why? Because we have a blessed hope. The blessed hope that Christ is coming again. And it means resurrection and life. And that's what he's talking about. The blessed hope. And what else does he call it? He calls it the glorious appearing. And you say, wait a second, I thought Christ already appeared. Past tense, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Yeah, that was Christ's first coming, right? Being born of a virgin, living, dying, rising, ascending, all of that. That's the first appearing. There's another appearing yet, Paul says. There's another appearing yet to come. And that's what we should be looking for, he says. We're preparing, we're anticipating it. 
And who is it that will appear in glory? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one person he's talking about here. Sometimes people have gotten confused whether this is talking about God the Father and Jesus Christ, but it's not. It's talking about Christ. Jesus Christ, who is God, who is also the Savior. He is going to appear a second time. And we, who have received the grace of God and salvation, we look forward to it. We long for it. And just as God's grace appeared in the past, bringing salvation, just as God's grace in the present is teaching us, is training us to live differently, God's grace is also preparing us for that day. Why? Because notice what it is that it's preparing us for. When, when, when Christ comes and his glorious appearing, what are we to be like? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the end game here? Look at what it says in verse 14. Christ gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, uh, purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. This is a really interesting verse. You know Jesus Christ didn't die to save you from hell? I mean, that's not what this verse says, right? If we ask, why did Jesus die? Paul answers here the question, but he doesn't say to get you out of hell, right? Because the grace of God that saves us is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. If that were the case, then we could stop everything after verse 11. The grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Stop. God's grace appeared bringing salvation. Jesus Christ came. He brought salvation. Done. No. God's grace is actively working in your life today to teach you, to train you. And God's grace is also anticipating a future where you will be what he wants you to be. That's the point here. Why did Jesus give himself for us in verse 14? So that he could redeem us from what? From lawless deeds. So he could redeem us. So he could set us free from sin and corruption. And so he could purify for himself his own special people. Why do we live as Christians and not like the rest of the world. Because that's God's purpose. That was the reason for which Christ gave himself. He didn't give himself to get us out of hell and bring us to heaven a bunch of corrupt rebels who were filthy and polluted in our sin. He gave himself to purify for himself a special people. realize the Bible tells us that without holiness, no man will see God. You can't see God in a state of sinful corruption. You say, wait a second, does that mean we have to do good things and right things to be saved? No. If I'm using the terms correctly, and I want to be careful here how I say this, we're saved by grace apart from works. But that grace of God doesn't stop. 
The grace of God is in the now age working to purify us and cleanse us and transform us so that when Christ returns, we will be... Look at the last phrase there in verse 14. Zealous for good works. The word zealous there, in this verse, the way it's translated is as an adjective describing us. But really, the word is a noun. It's the word zealot. He, he died. He gave himself to redeem us and purify for himself a special people, a zealot for good works. You ever met somebody who was a zealot? I was thinking about that this week. You ever met somebody who discovered all of a sudden that sugar is bad for you? <clears throat> and they say things like, you know, they say things like, you know, uh, uh, you know, sh- sugar's more addictive than cocaine. And, uh, and you know, re- re- refined sugar and, and processed foods are killing us. You know, we're, we're all going to die from this stuff. And it, it, they just take all the fun out of eating completely. <laughs> You know, I mean, you just, and they, and they can't stop. Like, they can't help themselves. they got to tell you every time they see you. And, You're not going to eat that, are you? And, and, and that kind of stuff, you know. And they just ruin everything because they're a zealot about the issue of sugar. Like, they, they just can't help but be obnoxious about it because it's what consumes them. It's what just is constantly in front of them. It's what they care about. Well, guess what? Jesus died. He gave himself. Why? Because he wanted to purify for himself a group of zealots. Not zealots for political power. Not zealots for, you know, healthy eating or healthy living. But zealots for good works. The grace of God that saves is the same grace that trains us to live differently And the same grace that ultimately prepares us for the return of Christ. And what's the goal? What's the end game? What does he want? What is the grace of God supposed to be producing? It's supposed to be producing a bunch of zealots. People that are so consumed with doing good. With living righteously. With following the the commands and the instructions of God. That it's as if it consumes them. So we have all these instructions in Titus 2 about how to live. (laughs) Why? Well, because God's grace has appeared. We have been saved by grace. But that grace is not just something that that was powerful in the past. It's not just something that that, that, that convinced you one day that you were a sinner in need of a Savior and you cried out for mercy and forgiveness and God forgave you. God's grace, if you received Christ, God's grace is still very much a part of your life, training and transforming you and ultimately preparing you for the day when Christ returns so that you would be a zealot for good works. You say, well, we're saved by grace apart from works. Yes. But that same grace that saves us is what transforms us and trains us to do good works. And those things can't be separated. Ultimately, you and I, as believers, if we're born again, we will stand before God in heaven, in his presence. 
But we won't stand there in the same condition we were in when he saved us. We'll stand there clothed. The book of Revelation talks about clothed in white robes. And the book of Revelation says that those white robes are the righteousness of the church. The good works that God's grace will train us to do. That's what this life is for. That's what this is. That's what's happening in your life right now. If you're born again, God is training you. His grace is training you. It's shaping you, anticipating his return. Let me just really briefly conclude. I got one more point here in the last verse because this is important. This could be a whole message on its own, but I can't do that. Okay, sorry. I want to finish Titus before the end of the year. I can't, can't drag this up too much longer. But the last verse of the chapter is really important. Paul speaking again to Titus. He says, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. These verbs that Paul says, these things that Titus is supposed to be doing, they are present tense. They're ongoing actions. You could say it this way. Paul says, Titus, keep speaking these things. Titus, keep exhorting. That word exhort means to to beseech or to plead with. It's not a, a, a harsh term. One of the things that I've learned, and I learned this way before I ever became a pastor, but something that God has taught me is that you can't make people make the right decision. You can't make people do things in the spiritual realm of their life. You can't make them make right decisions. I, tell my, I told my kids that just a couple weeks ago. I said, guys, I can't make you do what's right. I can't. Ultimately, you have to choose that for yourself, and I can't do that to you. I don't have the power to do that. So Paul tells Titus here, Titus, you're supposed to preach these things. You're supposed to exhort. You're to beseech. You're to plead with them to do what's right. Why? Because you can't force them. What do you do if they insist on doing wrong? Well, the same thing I do with my kids. You rebuke them with all authority, he says. Keep on rebuking. That's not necessarily comfortable it's not necessarily as something we enjoy, but it's something that God has given. And he's told here, Titus, who represents the authority in the church, who's going to be passed on to the elders that Titus is going to appoint, preach these things, exhort these things, rebuke these things, and then let no one despise you. That last line is important, too, because it speaks about Titus's example. Paul told Timothy something similar. He said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example in all things of a believer. I think that's what Paul is saying to Titus here too. Titus, you can speak, you can exhort, you can rebuke, you can preach, you can say all these right things, but you've got to live it too. You've got to set an example that's consistent. And so Titus, keep it up. I want to summarize that verse by just saying it this way because I think this is a valid way for us to look at it. God's grace is the focus of church ministry. It's really what we're supposed to be doing week in, week out, in an ongoing way as a church family. That's why God gives us leaders in the church who can preach and teach and exhort and rebuke. But, but we do that to one another as well. That we confront, that we encourage, that we admonish, that we say, hey brother, hey sister, I know you're struggling, but you've got to trust the Lord in this. You've got to walk with him. You need to obey. You need to do what's right here. And we do that for each other. Why? Because we need it. If we're, going, if we're going to learn by the grace of God 
to do what's right, to live as a Christian in this world, we're going to have to be continually reminded and encouraged and taught to do these things. And that's the ministry of not just in some nebulous way God's grace in our life, but it actually happens in the, in, in the form of people, the church. That's what this ministry is supposed to be. There's a lot more I could say, but I don't want to take the time. How do you think about the grace of God? It's more than just the gift of God in saving you from hell. That's true, but it's far more than that. It's God's grace that teaches us to live. God's grace that prepares us for his return. And that's really what our focus ought to be here as a church. Where are you at today? You can look back at Titus 2 and see all these instructions. How are you doing? Understand, this isn't about you kind of measuring up. This is the grace of God. These are the things that God's grace is trying to work out in your life. I hope you'll, you'll, you'll see in your own life what God is doing and how he's working to teach you to live in this way as a Christian. The whole thing is rooted in the gospel, the fact that Jesus Christ has come bringing salvation. It's like the, that's like the seed that's planted in the ground and everything else is the tree that's flowing out of it and all the fruit that it's producing. So we anticipate the day of culmination when God comes in all of his glory. Let's pray and let's ask God's help as we walk in his grace today.